um, uh, being on the path, and what, and then we talked about, and you got to enter in through the gate, and we talked about that it it looks that one of the ways to look at the tree of life uh, dream and the vision that goes with that is trying to place where the gate is on the dream, and we kind of concluded last week there's a pretty good case to be made for the fact that the gate is probably at the beginning of the the rod of iron, which would then make everybody on the rod of iron people that have walked through the gate. That would make them members. So everything that then comes out of that, you take a look in the viewpoint of members of the church, and it gives that dream new meaning, new vision. Okay? Um, but I, so I wanted to kind of emphasize that a little bit. I came across this, um, and, and it's the story of Oliver Cowdery. You remember Oliver Cowdery that he's going to become, uh, he does everything that he does in helping translate the Book of Mormon, and he wrote it all down, including uh, all of the printer's copy that they used to print the Book of Mormon from, and, and uh, seeing the, the Savior in the Kirtland Temple, and, and everything that he was, and then he becomes disaffected from the church, and he's out of the church for about eight years. And then when the church has moved to winter quarters, Oliver Cowdery, at the, at the behest of um, uh, a couple of other brethren, Parley Pratt, I think, is one that is encouraging Oliver to come back. And they go out and they, and they bring Oliver to winter quarters. And here's the talk, here's part of the talk that he gave at winter quarters in 1848. My name is Cowdery, Oliver Cowdery. In the history of the church, I stood in her council, not because I was better than other men to fill the purposes of God. He called me to a high and holy calling. I wrote with my pen the entire Book of Mormon, said a few pages, as it fell from the lips of the prophet Joseph, and he translated it by the power and gift of God, by means of the Urim and Thummim, or as it is called in that book, the Holy Interpreter. I beheld with my eyes and handled with my hands the gold plate from which it was translated. That book is true. Sidney Rigdon did not write it. Remember all the, the, the theories then, and they're the same theories now about where the Book of Mormon came from. Mr. Spaulding did not write it. It's not Solomon Spaulding's manuscript. I wrote it myself as it fell from the lips of the prophet. I was present with Joseph when a holy angel from heaven came down and conferred upon us the Aaronic priesthood and said to us at the same time that it should remain on the earth till the earth stands. I was with, present with Joseph when the higher Melchizedek priesthood was conferred by the holy angels from on high. Brethren, for a number of years I've been separated from you and I now desire to come back. I wish to come humble and be in your midst. I seek no station. I only wish to be identified with you. I am out of the church, but I wish to become a member. And then he said this, and this is kind of, I thought it was great. I wish to come in at the door. I know the door. I have not come here to seek precedence. I have come humbly and to throw myself upon the decision of the body, knowing as I do that its decisions are right. So here is this great man um, that when everything is said and done, he says, I, have, I can't just assume I have to come back through the door the same way that everybody else has. And by the way, I was the first one in this dispensation to come through the door. You know, Joseph baptized me. 
So he gets the door. Yes. At Far West, uh, he was one of the three presidents of the that, and and there was some misunderstanding about appropriations of money, uh, about how that worked. Um, and when Joseph came into town from Kirtland and got after uh, Oliver, and he got after W.W. Um, w. Phelps and David Whitmer, the, that group, and and uh, those three. Uh, their feelings were greatly hurt, and there were other things going on, and those three left together, Oliver, David Whitmer, and W.W. W. Phelps, and unfortunately, it was they also all signed papers for Governor Boggs to issue the extermination order that drove the saints out of Missouri. And then Oliver stayed in uh, Richmond, and uh, practiced law for a number of years. But even in the midst of his exile, he never, he, he said the Book of Mormon was always true, um, and he, he defended it to the end. Yeah. I think Oliver was married to a sister, too, which is a, like a family connection. Yeah, that's right. That, that, that's very true. David Whitmer's sister is who he, he married. Okay. So. So I didn't think he ever came back. He did. He, uh, he, he joined the church, he wanted to go with the saints, and then he dies about six months after this. So he dies shortly after. Uh, yeah? There's a little visitor center at South of Watts Island where the place where he came back to. Oh, is that right? It said this is where he came back to. Isn't that great? Cool. All right. Well, that's it. So let, let's uh, let, let's jump ahead now. As we get ready to make the transition now from Nephi to Jacob, um, I want to I want to stop for a sec. Um, especially those of you who maybe in college were maybe English majors or you studied a lot of literature. Um, there is one way of studying literature among uh, historians, especially. Uh, and that is, if you're going to look at the literature, first of all, you look at who? The author. the author. So, for instance, when people look at Hemingway's work, first of all, they're going to look at Hemingway. Because if we know what Hemingway went through and what he thought and how he saw, now we look at his writings through the eyes of the Hemingway we know. And, and so there's always kind of been kind of the psychological bent to a lot of historians and, and literature experts to study the author, to know, their, to understand why they wrote what they wrote and, and the purpose behind it. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. So I want you to, for just a second, let's do a fast little psych profile on the prophet Jacob before we read his writings. Okay. What do we know about Jacob... The early years. He was the firstborn in the wilderness. Did he ever see Jerusalem? No. So his first experiences were in the wilderness. Okay. He was terrorized by his older brothers. Constantly terrorized. By, yeah, by older brothers. Okay. Mm -hmm. What else? But he loved Nephi. He was always. He was. Yeah, he loved Nephi. He was very loyal to Nephi. 
If we go to um, scared, scared. This is actually this this plays a, a role in what we're about to talk about. Uh, here. In his patriarchal blessing from Lehi. Now, Jacob, I speak unto you, thou art my firstborn in the days of my <coughs> tribulation. Lehi's going to say, there were years of tribulation, and part of it was the wilderness experience, and part of it was your brothers. Because he's going to say, and behold, in thy childhood thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. Okay, now, what effect would that have on uh, young Jacob growing up? If his earliest experiences are watching his watching the rudeness during their years of affliction. Wheels turning. Yeah. tends to do that, doesn't it? When we're under kind of the, the weight of tribulation, you watch people kind of kind of separate a little bit here. When that weight is bearing down, you'll either go stronger and cling more or you it drives you out depending on kind of where you are. Okay? I think that's a good point. Okay? But he also had Nephi to look up to at the same point. Yeah. Right. And so in that moment, I'm either going to kind of draw close to Laman and Lemuel and I'm with you, or I'm going to draw close to Nephi and we'll go here. Okay? Where are we? <laughs> We're about to start Jacob 1. But, but, yeah. Uh, right now, we went back to uh, 2 Nephi 2 just to look at what, how Lehi was explaining what Jacob had gone through. Here's my experience with, um, and again, I'm going to draw on my, uh, I apologize, I'm going to draw on my clinical experience, I guess. When I work with those that have gone through a lot of tribulation and trial and trauma early in their life, it has an effect. Uh, I was watching my uh, my granddaughter uh, last night. Um, she and I have kind of become kind of hooked on each other. She's about 20 months. And uh, she comes in every night before going to bed. And I'm just coming in from work. And she looks for me. And she comes running in. She sits in my lap. She eats some of my food. She gets into my drawer uh, there and everything. And that's become our little nightly ritual. <laughs> but part of why it is she comes running to me is she knows that I'm crazy about her. So she sees a face that is excited to see her and loves her, and kids are drawn to someone who's crazy about them. There is in that setting a safety and a consistency, and they are able to trust. She's not willing to sit on everybody else's lap. She's willing to sit on my lap because I'm safe, and she knows that I won't hurt her and that I love her and that I care about her. And kids are that way with their mom. And kids are, you know... The, the ability when we're younger to bond and to be able to have good relationships as adults 
begins when we're children and we discover very early on whether the world is safe or whether it's risky, whether it's dangerous and there's a lot of hurt available or if it's a very safe place. And when that, when that safety is interrupted because of a lot of possible factors, people have a hard time as teens and as adults bonding and connecting and having safe emotional intimacy with other people because they learn while their, their emotional self was still forming that the world is scary, the world is unsafe. So for instance, I watched her the other night and, and she's, she's toddling all over the house and she trips and falls. She hits her head. And I watched her parents and her parents are looking at her and they're kind of going, are you okay? And there's a pause there. And she seems to be okay. And they said, jump up, get going. And she jumps off and runs. Now, what happens if she falls down, bonks her head, and they look over at her parents, and her parents go, oh, you fell, you broke your head, oh, no. And they pick her up, and they're, oh, they're holding her and everything. What is she learning? Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> right, and bumps like that are really terrible, and it's a scary place, and it's an anxiety kind of, okay? They learn very, very quickly at a very early age what it, that the world is frightening or whether it's safe. And, and how they respond to that early set of traumas and tribulations is kind of important. So the therapist part of me looks at Jacob, who grows up in a wilderness in the period of his tribulation, watching his brothers uh, doing things that bring pain to mom and dad and to brothers. What would Jacob have learned? Yeah, and that people who do bad things hurt other people. That's going to become really important in just a second. That, that sin, wickedness, hurts innocent people. Our sins have an effect on people who it is, is not their fault, who are innocent. Yeah. Being tied up. Tied up. Yeah. And it looks like there's going to be a shipwreck, and his other brothers are being crazy and mean. And what an effect. And mom is probably sob- sobbing and crying and yeah. fearful right. and pleading. And dad, and dad too. Yeah. You know, so what kind of a Oh, my goodness. Yeah. This is the stuff that kind of post traumatic stress comes out of, by the way. Exactly. Uh, is these kind of things. So when I look at that, I look, and I think that has an effect. Here. I, I really do. And, and because it's going to affect the way that he views the things his people are doing and the things that he needs to do about that. Okay? Have I set the table enough? Okay. So let's go to Jacob 1. And I want you to see that something interesting is occurring here. So let's hop, let's hop ahead to verse 15. Remember that Nephi has just died. 
And the question is, who would... And so they made Nephi a king. Nephi didn't want to be a king, but they separate from Laman and Lemuel and their families, and they move away, and the people want Nephi to be a king. So he allows himself to be a king, not because he thinks they should have kings, but why would he go along with being king? Just to make them happy? Why? Yeah, he wants to make them happy, right? The big pro- what's the big problem between Nephi and Laman and Lemuel? What is the big lie that Laman and Lemuel are going to tell? I don't think that he wants to rule over them and make them Who's the ruler? That's right. After Lehi dies, who's in charge? And for Laman and Lemuel, it should be them. Why? The oldest. And Dad had said it would be Nephi because he was the righteous one. And this is the way it's decreed. And in fact, in their patriarchal blessings, it says he will rule over you. Well, they didn't necessarily believe that. Dad's a visionary man. Remember, he's a kook. It should be us. And in fact, way when we get all the way down to Lamoni and Ammon, and they run into his dad, and his dad says, where are you going with Nephi, who is the son of a robber? What did they rob? The birthright. And, and, the, and all of the implements of kingship, the uh, sword of Laban, the interpreters, the brass plates, all of those things that say, this is who's in charge. So why would Nephi allow himself to be a king when he really thought they didn't need a king? Why would he be a king? He didn't want him to have any other kings. And it also cements succession. There's no get, we're not going to be battling over who's in charge. Okay? So if we're going to do the rights of kings and we're an Israelite, and Nephi dies, who becomes the next king? His son. Absolutely. Uh, 15, and it came to pass that the people of Nephi, under the reign of the second king, who would be Nephi's son, Nephi the second. In other words, it didn't matter what his name was originally. The other tradition was is that when you become king, you take on a kingly name. That'll become important when we talk about King Benjamin in, in a few weeks. Okay, they take on a kingly name, and so it didn't matter what Nephi's son's name was when he was born. When he becomes king, his name his name becomes Nephi. Nephi. Second Nephi. And his son would become the next king, and his name would be Nephi. Third Nephi, Nephi, probably. Okay? So Jacob didn't inherit that? No. Is that a given name, or do they just. I think they wouldn't know exactly. See, let let me give you one other case. When when, uh, Nebuchadnezzar rolls into. Jerusalem, and he conquers Jerusalem just as Lehi is leaving, and he grabs the last remaining uh, Davidic king, who at that point was Mattiah, or Mattiah, I think. Yeah, and then he says, But I'm going to give you a kingly name. That's what we do, and I will name you Zedekiah. That wasn't his, the name he was born with. They always put a new name on. On the king. That's a, that's a tradition. It's just what, what you do. 
Okay, so I think Nephi, Nephi, Nephi is the first few kings. Now, what does that then do with Jacob? So what role does Jacob and his younger brother Joseph play? Priest. Yes. Does that make sense? We're going to get this split now because under King, under Nephi, he was the king and the high priest. Now as we get this split here, now we're going to get this thing that will exist at times during the Nephite experience where you're going to have a high priest, Alma, and a, and a king, Mosiah. And so the, the two are kind of split out here. And we're certainly about to get this with Nephi the second and whoever and we have nothing on him and Jacob who would have been the oldest making him the high priest in officiating where in the temple that's what he does okay now let me let, before we do this let me do one other thing here because it's right here and it's available to us verse 12 it came to pass that Nephi died and the people who were not Lamanites were Nephites. Okay, so let's stop for a sec. This is kind of important. Because uh, we're going to have all these tribes. We've got the seven tribes of Lehi, right? Twelve tribes of Israel, seven tribes of Lehi. Uh, Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites. By the way, I think the Deuteronomic people are going to come through the Zoramites and we'll, again, we'll talk about that down the road here. But, there's the seven tribes. Now, I, Jacob, shall not hereafter distinguish them by these names, but I will call them Lamanites that seek to destroy the people of Nephi. Who are Lamanites? Anybody that is opposing the Nephites. Uh, and those who are friendly to Nephi, I will call Nephites. Now, that's kind of that's kind of an important thing to keep this in mind. If the Book of Mormon occurred where most scholars believe it did, somewhere in in Mesoamerica, isn't it fascinating that we're about to have wars between Nephites and Lamanites, and the Nephites will destroy the Lamanites? And the Lamanites will go off to lick their wounds and like five years later, here they come and they're like, more of them. And then they'll beat them again and a few years later, here come more Lamanites. And they're like, numerous the sands of the sea. Where are all these Lamanites coming from? And the critics of the church have always said, there just was, there wasn't that many people on the boat. How can there be numerous nah, sands of the sea Lamanites? Where are they coming from? Where were they coming from? They were already here. They were already there. Absolutely. And when this, when this colony came in, they landed in a place that was already filled with uh, the Kishamayas and the Olmecs uh, and the Aztecs. They were already there. And so, who's a Lamanite? Those who fight against the Nephites. So, so many of the Lamanites that were coming to bear against the Nephites weren't of the tribe, they weren't one of these tribes. They weren't of the blood of Lehi. They were simply those that opposed the Nephites. And by the way, who were the Nephites? Those who believed in Nephi. Could that also have been by way of conversion? Uh, they went out there and they taught the gospel and some of these Mayas and some of those 
would, would become Nephites through their conversions. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, a little bit, but you know what? Most of this you can read in the uh, Maya history, the Popovu, which says, here's the people, they were here, and suddenly these, these tribes of Lehi land in the middle of an already occupied peninsula. That's a, that's really a good question because even among the because if you if again if you go back to the the Popovu and it is the kind of this genesis creation of of the Mayas for instance and there are other a lot of other people the Incas down there but if you just take the Mayas for a second they have traditions of that their people came across the great water that there was a flood that they have all of this kind of thing and we really don't know whether those traditions are ones that we're always with the with the Maya down there, or how much of that was as they converted to and were around the Nephites, and the Nephites were showing them the brass plates, and then we became apostate. How much of that became mixed in with their traditions? Just hard to know. Probably, probably a combination. So they they would have different DNA than what the Nephites. Yeah, they they, they really would. I haven't seen the DNA studies on that, although it is interesting, the new DNA studies coming out on the American Indian that show heavy uh, Middle Eastern roots. Okay? So uh, it's just important to know that this is diffusing out into the indigenous people that are out there. So that's why the backdrop of who's Nephite and who's Lamanite gets a little murky because it wasn't like this pristine... Nobody's there for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of miles, and we have this little family right in the middle of that, and they're the only ones. But we do know from the scriptures that the only people that are on this land at this point are who? People that the Lord brought here. So however the Maya got here, the Lord wanted them here. We just don't have their exact records really of, of what, what occurred here. Um, though there are some suggestions from some BYU scholars that are suggesting that maybe there were others that did come from, uh, from Israel. We know Mulek did and his family, but there might have been others as well. Yeah? Yeah, the Jaredites pretty well cleaned each other out. Uh, we don't know nearly as much about who the Jaredites, when they got here, if there were other people here at that moment. It's not long after the flood, by the way, and whether that cleaned all this out, we don't know. That, that's, that's really a good question. So, right, yeah. I think the times and seasons, it says about the Jaredites that they brought many uh, cultures yeah. with them. So in their journey, they assume they picked up other people. Yeah, we've assumed it was one straight journey. 344 days at a storm at sea. And I, certainly they had all those days. Did they pick up some things along the way? How much did they bring with them? We just have so very little with them. But that wouldn't surprise me either. All right. So this is, this is where we are. So uh, we have all of, all of this. Now here, here is Joseph, or here's Jacob. And he's going to say... We also had many revelations, 
and the spirit of much prophecy. Wherefore, and he wants people to know, coming down the line here, as he picks up on the small plates of Nephi, he's going to continue what Nephi's been writing about. And Nephi, remember, had a very specific reason. In all of Nephi's writings, what did he want the people hundreds of years later to know? Yes. We believe in Christ. We hope in Christ. This is who we turn to so that our children may know the source of the remission of their sins. This small plates was supposed to be... Uh, uh, this is, it was a conversion to Christ and all about the gospel of Christ. So here's Jacob who probably did a bigger history going on. But to write on the small plates for Jacob means let me continue Nephi's narrative. And he's going to say... We also have many revelations in the spirit of much prophecy. Wherefore, we knew of Christ and His kingdom which was to come. Now, this is like 550 years prior. A long time before. Okay? Now, let me... Oh... Yeah. Can I take a step back? This is also the sense that we get at the end of Nephi or Jacob's writings. If you want to kind of know where he's coming from as he starts writing about his experiences, he's going to finish his book, remember, with It came to pass that I, Jacob, began to be old. This this will be great for your birthday. <laughs> Began to be old, wherefore I conclude this record by saying that the time passed away with us and also our lives passed away as if as it were unto us a dream. We being a lonesome and a solemn people. Think he was affected by his growing up? Boy, I think so. And the hard life that they had to live as they established a colony and had to fight against the Lamanites. Oh man. We are lonesome and solemn people. Wanderers cast out of Jerusalem. He never saw Jerusalem. But he knew that Jerusalem was their ancestral home. Born in tribulation. In a wilderness. And hated of our brethren which caused wars and contention. Wherefore we did mourn out our days. Boy, you just get the idea that Jacob carried on his heart. I just get this sense, maybe all of his life, all of the stuff that he had seen and experienced. And again, that's going to make sense when he starts preaching to the people. Okay? So keep, keep that idea in mind. Okay, so. So, here's what he's going to start off saying. And this may... He's going to say, all right, in Jacob 1.7, wherefore, wherefore we labored diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ and partake of the goodness of God. Now, when you're listening to him and you're going, here, boy, we're wanderers in the wilderness and tribulation and we did mourn out our days... That doesn't sound very gooder. Does it? 
We, and partake of the goodness of God that they might enter into his rest. That just doesn't sound gooder. Sister, it's a little bit like saying, why don't you come to the Mormon church? You'll love it. You come to meetings for three hours every Sunday, and then you're going to have callings and responsibilities. There might be extra meetings. Is it going to cost me anything? Oh, yeah, they've got a 10% tithing and, and budget. we got all this money, and then you can do this, and time and energy. Oh, well, man, that cause you to drink. Well, you can't do that. <laughs> really? Yeah, on that coffee? Well, that's gone too. <laughs> Sorry, and the tea? When you go out to eat? No, that's gone too. Oh, what about the, don't even talk to me about cigarettes, okay? You know, it's just like all the do's and don'ts. I, this isn't an easy thing. This doesn't look like gooder, does it? This doesn't look like gooder. Now, in fact, he's going he's gonna to tell you what gooder is in the next verse. This just this, this gets so much better. Let me tell you about this. Jacob 1.8. And all that all men would believe in Christ and view his death. <coughs> and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. This is gooder. Let me stop for a second. How can view his death or understand his death or take a close look at the circumstances under which he died and why he died and suffer his cross and bear the shame? How in the world can that be gooder? I actually experienced this last night. Um, I got some news from my family and it was really painful and heavy and I was trying to like refocus and feel the spirit again and, and try to really hang on to that and uh, after this it says that you're a disciple of Christ and I realized that I am bearing a cross of difficulty and challenges in my life and I'm still a disciple of Christ, and He loves me. And that's what I want more than anything. Yeah. 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 Sometimes we, we bear a heavy load. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This looked, this looked gooder, right? Yeah, but, but we understand joy because it's important that we, in order to know joy, we must know sorrow. We must know sorrow. I was trying to explain that in gospel doctrine yesterday. It came up about the fall, and I, I just said, you know, I had raised my hand finally, and just go, wait a minute, we're different from any other Christian church on the planet. We're the only ones that believe that I know of. Tell me if I'm wrong. We're the only ones that believe in the fortunate fall. That the fall was a good thing. Everybody else is kind of blaming Eve and going, yeah, we could have been hanging out in the Garden of Eden and our kids would have just been eating fruit. And got... 
No, there's none of that. And get, but at least we'd be happy. No, there was no happiness either. Okay? Can I, can I take this kind of one step farther maybe give you a little bit of insight? Here's something... Um, and again, this is some recent scholarship in the church. Wish I could say I was smart enough to come up with this. I'm out, but I wasn't. I'm smart enough to know where to look. Okay. There you go. Do you know what Nephi means in Egyptian? No. Good. <coughs> means good. Now, there, there are some... They've also found a connection that there was a Nephi uh, grain god... And I think that's also true, but that's part of... But the actual translation of Nephi means good. Might have been why Lehi named him. We watched this this naming of Lehi of his sons, and you can see kind of the the progression of his life. You know, he's got... The first two sons, Laman and Lemuel, those are are Arabic Bedouin names. Those are names common to that. Nephi and Sam... Those are Egyptian. The last, Jacob and Joseph, those are Hebrew names. You watch, you watch Lehi the trader trading across Egypt and, and living that kind of building, kind of his business life, coming into, here comes the study the Egyptian stuff, coming to study the brass plate stuff, and you just watch Nephi's life as exemplified in the lives of his, names of his sons. Okay? So, Nephi is good. Uh, by the way, Joseph said, someone asked him what the name Mormon went, meant. What does Mormon mean? More good, is what he said. It means more good. I thought Samuel was a uh, Hebrew name. There is a Samuel, but that Sam also was Egyptian. Yeah. Okay? So... I, Nephi, had, so here we get this word play in, the, in 1 Nephi 1 of Nephi, who is saying, I, Nephi, was born of goodly parents. Okay? I love that. Now, but listen to this. I was taught somewhat in the learning of my father, and having seen many afflictions... In, the, in, in all my days, having had a great knowledge of the goodness. Wow. What is, he say, what is he telling us about goodness? Okay, hang on to that. All right, one more here. Let's go back to Jacob 1. Just drowning in stuff. Okay. Verse 9 of Jacob 1. And Nephi began to be old, and he saw that he must soon die. Therefore he anointed a man to be king, his son, and a ruler over his people according to the reigns of the kings, according to the way that the kings do this. Then he says, And the people having loved Nephi exceedingly, he having been a great protector of them, having wielded the sword of Laban in their defense. Okay, stop for a sec. When do we first come across the sword of Laban? When it was still attached to Laban. That's why we call it the sword of 
Laban, yes. Okay. And remember that Nephi was enjoying the sword and everything, and then he's told by the, the angel to do what? Cut off his head. Take the sword and kill Laban. What was his response to having to shed blood with the sword of Laban? Oh, he fought that and it was horrible. Never before have I done it and I don't make me do this and I don't want... And, and okay, you're going to have to do it so that the people won't uh, be in, die in ignorance and stuff like that. Okay, so his earliest experiences with this sort of Laban was dread and horror of, of having to shed blood with this sword. Could have. That's right. Why? Why? You're right. Because in fact, Nephi was kind of expecting that, wasn't he? The Lord struck down the Egyptians, and, and we're going to do it just like the Egyptians, because he's going to wipe them out. I'll just grab the plates out of his cold, dead fingers, and I'll be out of here. But no, he has to actually do it. He has to actually shed blood with the sword himself. Why? Here may be one of the reasons. So he can defend his people? Ultimately, he will have to take the same sword and defend his people. Against who? His brethren. I don't know if he was on the plane somewhere actually fighting against Laman and Lemuel. I suspect, though, what's a greater possibility, it might have been their sons or their nephews. Especially in those early days, the chances were pretty strong that Nephi was having to use the sword of Laban to kill his relatives. And wow. Laban was a relative. And Laban was, yeah. Well, to a certain extent, Laban probably was. Okay? So, here, so, so now, let's go back... Real quickly here, 1 Nephi 1. Having been born of goodly parents, having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, having been highly favored of the Lord, having a great knowledge of the goodness of God. So when we go, when we're looking here then at Jacob 1, and he's going to say to us. We labored diligently, verse 7, that we might persuade people to come unto Christ and partake of His goodness. Now, what is He saying to all of us? If you're going to partake of His goodness, what is He saying to you? What might you have to do? We have a new family motto. You may laugh. It's taken from the story of Daniel the lion's den. It's that lions have to eat. So sometimes Sometimes you're the lion. And it doesn't change So, if I'm saying to you, you are good people, 
I want you to partake of the goodness of God. What am I saying to you? You may have to defend. You may have to bear some of the shame. You're going to have to carry His cross. Bear His cross. What does that say? When we say, I'm going to join the church and experience the goodness of God, and it's going to be goodness. We translate that to? Trial free. Trial free. I will be happy. There will be no trials in my life because I'm, I'm a member and there should be joy and happiness and angels singing and my kids should never argue. Life is good and the church is wonderful and, you know, uh, the Relief Society president always knows exactly what to do and primary teachers are always where they're supposed to be. Life is good and we're experiencing the goodness <laughs> Sometimes sacrament meetings are boring. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then what he's saying is that goodness doesn't mean trialless. In fact, goodness of God in this means if you are good, you will experience trial. Lions still got to eat. I like that. And bad people are they're still evil in the world. And the more we are gooder. The world becomes badder. That is, that's, that's what he's saying. So we can't tra- translate gooder as painless. Gooder actually means if, if we're going to do this, then we're actually going to find that sometimes we have to wield a sword with those that we don't wish we didn't have to. And that may mean being strong, drawing lines, drawing limits, drawing boundaries, saying no, or having to defend an unpopular position in public. So. All right. Yeah. Especially yesterday in our priesthood meeting along this line, and uh, I think the conclusion was that by following the rules of the gospel and living the principles, that you avoid so many problems that the rest of the world have. Yeah. And that's a goodness in itself. There are so many other things in terms of our lifestyle and our health and our peace that living the gospel brings more goodness to our life. Yep, exactly right. And then there are going to be some aspect, some aspects that says, and there will be additional trials because we are suffering His cross. And it's going to, so it's going to be a mix. We're going to get this both, and that is the goodness of God. There, there will be, you will be bearing children, and you may doing it in sorrow. You may eat the, you may be eating of the land, but you're also going to have thorns. Both things are going to be there. And it seems like that's what Adam and Eve learned in the garden, wasn't it? That the goodness is both. The goodness is both sides of that, not just the one. That's goodness. Okay? Yeah. All right. Questions on any of that? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Kevin? Yeah. I was thinking the same thing with how many times it says in the scriptures over and over, if you obey the commandments, you shall prosper. 
and I was thinking about the word prosper. In my mind, prosper means be okay financially. Yeah. And have what I want and not have problems. And I was realizing prospering has to mean something different than that. It has to mean things like the peace and knowledge that you understand amidst your trials. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. What's the last thing she said? Say, say that again a little louder. Uh, that prosper must mean something more like the, the peace you have amidst, amidst trials. the trials. Yeah, and that would be good. Or knowledge. Yeah. I'm actually. I'm also thinking too. In the during the creation story, we're constantly told as he separates out the water and the land and the light and the darkness and everything, and then he sees that it's good. He sees that he's created two aspects of that. That's yeah. Interesting thought. Okay. Thank you. All right. All right. Let me move forward. Because um, here, because now here comes. Jacob, and you're about to see what it is that he is concerned about what he chooses to preach on. Uh, let me ask you something. Um, this is going to sound like it's coming a little bit out of left field. Um, anybody, there's an there old movie uh, with uh, Tom Cruise in it called The Minority Report. Ew. Ew. <laughs> what, what, what was the basis of somebody who... Had, who hasn't seen the Minority Report? So somebody tell me what the basis of the Minority Report movie was. I'm not necessarily recommending it. I'm just saying this is an interesting thing. What was that? The leaders of the country or whatever it was could predict um, whether someone was going to kill someone or not. So they could arrest them ahead of time. For a uh, pre-crime. For a pre-crime. And then he was wrongly accused. Yeah. So, so in that, and so they had these, they had these precogs, the, these empaths who could say, "You haven't committed a crime, but I know you're about to." So we're actually going to arrest you before you commit the crime because we know you're going to. That way, we can prevent crime because we just arrest you ahead of time. <laughs> that sounds like a good move. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's an interesting concept here of pre-crime. Okay, you, you haven't done it yet, but dang it, you're thinking about it. So if we got we got to stop you before you actually do what you're gonna do. In my field, we call that profiling. That's profiling. Yeah, there's a tendency to, towards that. Okay. All right. Now, I want you to turn now to Jacob two. Because Jacob two, here's Jacob. So he's now going to stand in the temple. And this might have been the occasion of Passover or uh, uh, might have been Feast of Tabernacles, I'm not sure. Uh, but here's a chance for the priest in the temple to preach to the people. So everybody's coming together to get this wonderful address. Um, and by the way, in some ways I, I equate this, that, uh, and I've mentioned this before. There was a wonderful talk uh, years ago uh, in 1976 by Spencer Kimball. And it is the bicentennial. And everybody's gathering to hear President Kimball talk about uh, uh, things about the bicentennial. And they, and they all gather and he gives this fabulous talk. And it's completely opposite of what anybody was expecting. 
And it was called the false idols we worship. We are a warlike people. We depend on our weapons. We worship them as idols. Amazing talk. But it was opposite to what the people were expecting at the time. You want a great experience? Go back and read that talk. Just Google that one. The False Gods We Worship by Spencer W. Kimball. Holy cow. Not what you were looking for. Well, this is kind of one of those things. Okay? Now, Jacob says, okay, so, uh, let's see. So here's uh, the brother Jared spoke after the death of Nephi. Might even been at the funeral. Who knows? Now, my beloved brother and I, Jacob, according to the responsibility which I am under to God to magnify mine office with soberness. And then he, he just said this. Uh, and he's going to say that I might rid my garments of your sins. We take on the responsibility of those that we have responsibility for. Okay, And, and if we have time, we may come back to this. Ye yourselves know, verse 3, that I have hitherto been diligent in the office of my calling. But this day I am weighed down with much more desire and anxiety for the welfare of your souls than I have hitherto been. Now, look at the next verse, because I need you to see where he is in this process. For behold, as yet ye have been what? Obedient. You are, you're obedient. You're keeping the commandments. You're obedient unto the word of the Lord, which I have given unto you. So they're sitting there going, we're good, we're golden, we're keeping the law of Moses. You have been obedient. Okay. But hearken unto me and know that by the help of the all-powerful creator I can tell you concerning your thoughts. Okay, don't we love this part? I mean, if this is all, when I start reading this, this is usually about the time I start squirming. Joseph Smith once said uh, that those on the other side know our thoughts and are grieved often thereby. That's lovely. I would really love, I would really love for my ancestors to know my thoughts on a regular basis. <laughs> That's a great comfort to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <sighs> so in this case, he says... I, I can tell you concerning your thoughts how ye are beginning to labor in sin. Which sin appeareth very abominable unto me, yea, abominable unto God. It grieveth my soul and causeth me to shrink with shame before the presence of my Maker that I must testify unto you concerning your actions. About your behaviors? No, I have to testify to you concerning your wickedness. Yeah, of your hearts. Now, we know specifically there are going to be two major sins that he's going after here. And you guys know this well enough. What are the two major sins that come up in Jacob 2 and 3? One is what? Sexual sin, chastity. Pride and riches is the other one. 
I know that you are going down this road and you're beginning to put your hearts on these two areas. Okay, now, let, let me step back from this for a second. And I apologize, some of you have been in the class uh, for, for a while here. We've talked about this before, but I want to kind of mention, I want to use this quote again against the backdrop of what Jacob is saying and kind of bring it together, okay? Um, so, so bear with me if you've heard me talk about this. President Joseph F. Smith uh, made a statement uh, that was actually one of Neil Maxwell's uh, favorite quotes uh, drove him to a lot of contemplation. And I remember hearing Neil Maxwell use this quote uh, and, and only the one line. And I used it for a number of talks for years. And then I ended up finally going back and researching the rest of the talk. And the whole quote here is incredibly powerful, I think. And it really kind of shook up my, the way that I looked at things in a really big way. Okay? Joseph Smith. <laughs> The education of our desires is one of far-reaching importance to our happiness in life. Now, what is a desire? Something you want. It's something you really want, right? And where do we want it? In our heart. Now, yeah. Yes. We, we, that desire begins in our heart. We just want stuff. We crave stuff. Okay? When I'm standing, when I go up to Hutchins Barbecue and I'm standing in line and you smell the smell coming off of there, we just can't get through the line fast enough. Yeah, now I'm going to, yeah, now I'm just going to buy a little bit. I'm craving a lot. Okay? We desire that. And we have those things that we want. Again, as moms, what do you want for Mother's Day? And what do you want? With peace and love and happiness and no arguing and no contention. I want my husband to just be a good home teacher. You know, we just desire things. And yet, isn't it fascinating that Joseph F. Smith says the education of your desires is of far-reaching importance. Why? Why do our desires have to be educated? Because we're carnal nature and we want what we shouldn't want. We're drawn to what we shouldn't want to be drawn to. And he said part of this transformation really of of our souls and our conversion process is having our deepest desires transformed and educated and changed and altered. I think there are a lot of times, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day, and, and again, you've got the uh, celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the celestial kingdom. We have the three degrees, right? When it comes to the commandments and keeping the commandments, what do they do in the in the telestial kingdom? They don't keep the commandments. What do they do in the terrestrial kingdom? Do they keep the commandments? Yes. For all the wrong reasons. For a reward. 
Why do we keep the commandments in the celestial kingdom? Because we love God. Our desires for why we keep the commandments have transformed and grown and changed. And our desires have changed. Even though our outward appearance may be, we may be doing a lot of the similar things, we do them for much different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And we probably know very little about the celestial kingdom too. Even less. But we know enough that that should begin to educate our desires of what we want. Yeah. We don't necessarily need to know, you know, the, the things about the celestial and the terrestrial because we don't want we we have been taught that we don't want those. We want the celestial kingdom. Yeah. So all through our church experience, our desires are educated towards that. Yeah. Talking to a kid the other day, and I said, "How struggling with pornography?" Um, and I said, "How come you look? How come you're looking at pornography?" And he kind of hummed and hawed and everything, and then he finally gave me the straightest answer I've ever gotten, because I like it. It feels good, and I like it. And but I got to stop doing it. I want to go on a mission. Got to stop. But the reality is, I like it. Yeah. When you say we want to go to the celestial kingdom because we love God, I don't feel like I know God like I know Jesus Christ. Yeah. I know Him. Yeah. But God the Father is... He's kind of removed from us, isn't He? Yeah. Yeah. So part of this coming to know Thee, the only true God who now sent, I mean, is coming to know Him... And love him. Now, again, my my granddaughter, how come she loves me? Because you love her. Yeah. First of all, she knows that I love her. And then as she's gotten close to me, she knows that I'm keeping her safe and I will feed her stuff off of my plate. And my food is yummy. Unless she really wants the spicy stuff and then that's not so good. (laughs) But there's a process of coming to know me that makes that safe and grow. And I think that's I think it's that way with this. Our desires to want to know God, sometimes we have to kind of fake it till we make it. You know, we're keeping the commandments for the for the glory or for the rewards or whatever, or but it's habit, or we grew up in the church or whatever. We just do the stuff. And we fake it till joy takes over and the education of our desires, and suddenly there is a point where maybe the temple film is kind of boring, or we've seen it so many times we just keep falling asleep. And somewhere along the way, something else begins to change us and transform us, and we begin to see real much deeper meaning in this. We were talking about this the other day, President, and we are talking about uh, temple work, and it's just like, at the end of the day, if you take everybody that's ever born, we're just scratching the surface of the entire amount of work that needs to be done. We're not even coming close. Why don't we just wait for the millennium? And just get it all done well. Why are we worried about family history when during the millennium they can show up and give us their actual birth date so we can get it done? <laughs> Rather than having to spend time wandering around in old cemeteries looking for a birth date. <laughs> yeah, I was born on January 4th. Okay, great. We're good. How come we're doing this over and over and over? Yes. 
Why did, <laughs> yes! Yeah. Why in the world would the, would the Lord tell the brother of Jared to build this barge and not include in it, put the holes in it? Wouldn't that have been in the original blueprint? How come he has to then build the barge and then go, there's no hole, there's no air. So he's got to go back and modify what the Lord gave him in the first place. Yeah, it's that education of having to ask and struggle and learn and sit through temple sessions. We're being educated. I was going to say, I think when it comes to sacrifice, not only you have to give them, something very sacred in it. You know, what a mother goes through to bring forth a child. Yeah. And then there's, that's why she's so close to the other self. I hadn't thought about that. Wouldn't a two-week gestation period for a baby be about right? <laughs> Pregnant, two weeks, done. Instead, you got to haul it around for nine months, three months, you know, feeling sick as a dog, three months uncomfortable, three months waddling. Weeks would be perfect. <laughs> this this education process takes a while. Yeah. I think that then justifies the goodness of God is the education process. The right to choose. Thank you. The right to allow other people to choose, which means crap happens. Yeah. And think about for how many people they stay on the outside of the church because they're saying, I can't believe that God would let bad things happen to gooder people. But understanding that the goodness of God means I'm going to allow this thing because I see the, uh, that all the choices are available. And that is goodness. Thank you. That's a, that's a nice connection. Yeah. 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 I always loved that when my when my kids were teenagers, like thirteen and fourteen, and they go, "You know what, Brother Jones said this and this in church. Isn't that cool?" I'm thinking, how many times have we told you that, but this time you finally heard it. <laughs> It just had to come from the right source to say the exact same thing. And we would just go, wow, that, that Brother Jones is smart. <laughs> that is really good stuff. Yeah. yeah, but it's also about the right time. And I also learned as I had all those teenagers that even though they acted like they weren't listening, I found out later they really were listening even though they had their headphones. Yes, they, they do have the ability to be looking on their phones and hearing you. <laughs> yes. Okay, so here's the rest of the quote for this. So, so part of this education of your desires, which is where Jacob is going with this, it says, I, by the Lord's uh, inspiration, I know your thoughts, which is really revealing your desires. I know what your heart is hung up on. I know what it's desiring. So here's the rest of his quote. Because this is where it ended for... 
uh, Elder Maxwell. God's ways of educating our desires are, of course, always the most perfect. And what is God's way? Everywhere in nature we are taught the lessons of patience and waiting. We want things a long time before we get them. In nature we have our seed time and harvest. Nature resists us and keeps admonishing us to wait. Indeed, we are compelled to wait. The things that we desire from a carnal nature, how long do we have to wait? Sometimes not long. We want it now. One thing about you know, the kid in the pornography, if I want to look at pornography, I'm two clicks away. And if I'm going to fight it, which is what he's doing, now I have to fight it, that having peace and not being tormented by the addiction is months away. Okay, so, if we go back to Jacob then, I can tell you concerning your thoughts, and I would add, and desires, how you're beginning to labor in sin. And then he's going to have to go on to say, uh, it grieveth me that I must use much boldness of speech. Your wives and children, many of feelings are exceedingly tender and chaste and delicate. Um, in fact, let's first uh, go to three. Um, uh, where he says, one minute to two. No, I'm not finding it. Where he talks about the tender wives and how they're, they're tears. Mm -hmm. Oh, there it is. Not only have you been after gold, but you've done greater iniquities. You have broken the hearts of your tender wives, lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them. The sobbings of their heart. Wow. Oh. Uh, clear as that. The sobbings of their heart are sent up to God because of the strictness of the word which cometh down to you. Many hearts died pierced with deep wounds. Wow. What he's saying is, is that your thoughts lead to actions, lead to sins, and those sins have consequences on the innocent. That's what he's saying. Yes. Good comment. So if they ha if they're still good, what is it that they're doing here? What is it that they're desiring and talking about and craving? I thought they'd already been doing it. Apparently not. Looking at pornography before the action. <laughs> that may be a good parallel. It might. But uh, I'll give you a hint. Verse 23, But the word of God burdens me because of your grosser crimes. Thus saith the Lord, This people begin to wax iniquity. They understand not the scriptures, for they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms because of the things that were written concerning 
David and Solomon. What are they planning? Polygamy. Kind of a polygamy. They're going to have concubines. And, and, and by the way, and from that standpoint, part of the, the... So this isn't just about sexual sin. Why would they want to be living like David and Solomon? Pride, glory, money. It was one of the ways, sometimes, this happened sometimes when polygamy was not being lived very well in the early days of the church, which was rarely, is that there was a sense too of saying the more wives, the greater glory. The more wives, the greater... <laughs> the greater headache. <laughs> the, the more wives, the greater righteousness. How do we tell who the real righteous people are? They're the ones with the bigger... Okay. So there was a sense to this wasn't just straight up, we just want to be have more intimacy going on all over the place. This is also a matter of we want to, we want to be like David and Solomon. So they were talking about it and discussing and saying, I want to have more wives. I think that I think that's I think that's the deal. I think that's what's going on. Because they're doing it according to the scriptures. If I want to prove I'm more righteous. And, and, and by the way, the fundamentalist sects, this, this comes really close to a lot. They're saying, we're going to live the higher law, and the higher law is going to be uh, polygamy. I mean, multiple wives. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I was going to say here, is that we would probably call it a group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The good stuff. The more righteous stuff. You don't want to be the boring Mormons. Let's get you and transcend the boring sacrament meetings and gospel doctrine classes. Let's get you ready for the really good stuff. Yeah, I think I think that's part of what was going on here. So they were talking about it ahead of time and doing it, and there were already tears and broken hearts because of what was coming. And I don't even. And we, won't, we don't even have time to go into kind of the. The, the racist things that were going on about how they were looking at the Lamanites. They have darker skins than you and you're putting them down. Wow. Mm, great stuff here. Okay, so. I, I want to kind of finish then with this principle. I think where Jacob is going is that our thoughts reveal our desires and desires dictate our decisions. That sometimes if we're not sure what our desires are, look at our thoughts. And conversely, if the, what we dwell on, what we think about, what we uh, visualize, creates in our hearts desires. And those can be positive and negative. But our desires can reveal our thoughts. Our thoughts can form our desires. And this is the highest level of struggle, I think. It's one thing to say we keep the commandments. It's a much more difficult kind of thing to control and alter and heal our thoughts and our thinking. And I think that's the battle. That is the true education of our desires. Despite that, That's why at the end of the day... And I've said it a number of times, we will not be 
saved because of our actions. We won't be exalted because of our actions, what we've done. We will be judged and exalted ultimately on what we have become through the atonement of Christ. The transformation that has occurred in us. And the, and the thing that will have to be the healed the most is our thoughts and our desires so that they are focused solely on Him for all the right reasons. That's why we need a millennium and eternities to get to that point, and it can't be done quickly. So give us three strategies to shape our thoughts. To shape our thoughts? That, that's a, she's asking for three strategies. Let, let, let me give you one solid one. Okay? Uh, one that I, I work with a lot, and that is that when we are having thoughts and desires that are uh, destructive in nature, that just trying to throw them out doesn't work. Nature abhors a vacuum. It leaves a, an open space. Okay, and, and what we're usually throwing out is an irrational, wicked thought, and it has to be kicked out. We have to see it as irrational. But what we have to replace it with is the truth. So we have to look at, here's what I've been thinking or visualizing, and I have to put in its place something that is truthful, that the Holy Ghost can bear witness to. If it's truth, the Holy Ghost will kind of tattoo it to our DNA, if you will. Connect it. But we have to, first of all, now, that's made harder by the fact that most thoughts, so many desires... Most of our thoughts, cognitive psychologists tell us, 80% of which are unconscious. 80% of what drives us is unconscious. In our habits, in our old experiences, in, in the traumas that we had, experiences younger. Our desires reveal some of those thoughts. It gives us an idea where we're drawn to. Or at times of pain and fear, these thoughts come up trying to tell us who we are and what we have a right to. And when we capture those things, we have to take them and say, that's wrong, that's a lie, but we have to then replace it with what is true and focus on that. And there's a, there's a whole couple hour lesson, there's three hours of education week discussion on that, uh, which I've done. So uh, I, I just think at the end of this, it really is... Uh, that our thoughts are the real battleground. Our desires are the real battleground. And be nice to yourself if, if in your impatient to have this done, if it's a battle you fight most of your, most of your days. Because the goodness of God is the fact that He is helping us fight these battles. And we have good days and bad days. And He will help us through that. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.